Well, good morning. Pastor uh, <clears throat> Ryan is out at Grace Adventures, as was mentioned this morning, preaching at Community Worship, so you get me today. And I feel like I need to warn you up front that it's a good thing there's no Sunday school today, because this is going to fall somewhere between a Pastor Ryan-length sermon and a Pastor Mark-length sermon. But I promise you it won't be boring. Um, so this morning we're going to be looking at the passage in Galatians that talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And I think if you've been in church for any length of time, you've probably heard a sermon or two or 50 maybe even on this passage. And so my prayer this morning is that God would make this fresh to us uh, through his Spirit. So to help us not be bored this morning, I have invited some young men up to remind us what the fruit of the Spirit are. So I'm going to have them come up real quick and uh, sing a little bit for us. So here we go. not a coconut fruit of the spirit's not a coconut if you want to be a coconut you might as well hear it you can't be a fruit of the spirit because the fruit is love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness and gentleness and self-control love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness and gentleness and self-control oh the fruit of the spirit's not a banana the fruit of the spirit's not a banana you want to be a banana? You might as well hear it. You can't be a fruit of the Spirit. Because the fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. Oh, the fruit of the Spirit is not a watermelon. The fruit of the Spirit is not a watermelon. You want to be a watermelon. You might as well hear it. You can't be a fruit of the Spirit. Because the fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. Oh, the fruit of the Spirit is not a lemon. The fruit of the Spirit is not a lemon. You want to be a lemon? You might as well hear it. You can't be a fruit of the Spirit, because the fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. Oh, the fruit of the Spirit is not a cherry. The fruit of the Spirit is not a cherry. If you want to be a cherry, you might as well hear it. You can't be a fruit of the Spirit, because the fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. Okay, everybody knows that grapes come in bunches, so everybody get in big bunches. The fruit of the Spirit is not a grape. The fruit of the Spirit is not a grape. You want to be a grape. You might as well hear it. You can't be a fruit of the spirit, cause the fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. The fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness. Okay, so you're not bored, right? Watch out, that might be the praise team of tomorrow. I really hope so. So, um, I wonder how popular that song would have been if the... So that was featured on Uncle Charlie. Have any of you heard that before? Like on Uncle Charlie? Okay. I wonder how popular that song would have been if instead of focusing on the fruit of the Spirit, they had uh, focused on the deeds of the flesh in the same passage, and then it had gone something like this. The deeds of the flesh are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, and strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. <laughs> Everybody all together now. Here we go. The fruit. Oh, goodness. Okay. <laughs> right? I'm just kidding, but... I do want to make the point that often we get to this passage and we like to focus on the nice, tidy, easy-to-swallow fruit of the Spirit, but we kind of jump over the deeds of the flesh and we sort of ignore the broader context of Galatians sometimes. And so this morning, we want to take 
all of God's word in, in context. So if you're able, I would invite you to stand with me, and we are going to read our passage for this morning, which is Galatians 5, 16 through 26. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have, cru have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your word that we don't have to journey through life wondering how you would have us live, wondering how we can be saved, that you have shown us in your word that you have written it down for us so that it would be abundantly clear. We pray this morning that you would allow this text to come alive for us in a fresh way, and we recognize that it would be ironic for us to preach on the leading of the Spirit and have this sermon not be led by the Spirit. So I pray this morning that you would Use me that if there's anything in these pages that have been written that need to be struck out, uh, things that need to be added, that you would make that um, evident this morning. Pray that you would change us through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can sit down. So I usually get the opportunity to preach about once per year. Uh, maybe that's as much as people can handle. I don't know. Um, but it just so happens it tends to be in the summer. That's my least busy season. Um, and a lot of times in the summer, we have topical series, right? So um, this is the first time I've gotten to preach a passage that's been dictated by the preaching schedule, right? Like, here's your passage, preach on this, which is pretty cool. Um, but typically in the past, the topics have been really broad. Worship, gender and sexuality, idolatry, imprecatory psalms, Sabbath. And the process for like a topical sermon is you're looking at the breadth of Scripture on that particular topic, and you're assessing all the wisdom, and then you're trying to boil it down into the most condensed, potent form you can. Okay? So what we're going to find this morning, though, is that Paul's already done that. He's already, he's a very studied man, right? He knows the Bible well, and he's already condensed it down into this hyper-distilled explanation of the Christian life. So it's going to be our job this morning then to, instead of packing it all in, to unpack it. So we're going to do this by going verse by verse through the text. We're going to extract what we can from each verse in context, and then we're going to draw some application based on what we've learned. This is simple, straightforward, and unfancy, but it is effective because we are letting God's word speak for itself. So because this passage is so potent, I think it's also important to mention that I'm not going to be able to exhaust every single point that Paul is trying to make this morning. We're going to be starting a Sunday school class on September 10, going through the fruit of the Spirit, so this will get belabored more later. But today, as I'm preaching, the Spirit might bring to mind some passages for you that are pertinent to your life, and that's good because that's what he's supposed to do, right? He's supposed to illuminate scripture for us. And so even though I can't exhaust everything, we are going to count on him to do his job. Does that make sense? So we're going to dive in this morning right in verse 16, which says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. So that phrase right away at the beginning, but I say, 
sounds like a response maybe to something someone else has said, but it's not. So yes, overall, this letter from Paul is a response to the false gospel of the circumcision party, but if you read backwards from verse 16, at least that I can find, there's not a specific statement that he's rebutting. So instead, if we were to look in the Greek, this, this word here is actually more helpfully translated, moreover, I say, or also, I'm telling you. So in the ESV, it says, but I say, but like if you look at the NIV or the NLT, I think they've helpfully translated this, so I say. So it's actually a continuation of what Paul has laid out in the previous paragraph. So I know last week we had the Stevens, and so it's been two weeks since we've been there, but two weeks ago, Pastor Ryan preached through this paragraph, and the key idea, if you remember, was to remind us of our freedom in Christ. We yelled that several times. And the main application point comes in verse 13, which says, Do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. So this phrase, so I say, actually cues us in now that Paul's now going to tell us how we make sure we don't abuse this freedom in Christ for the flesh. So if you look at verse 16, how does he say we do that? We walk in the Spirit. Thank you, Sharon. Yes. Uh, so this is one of those Christian phrases, walking in the Spirit, that I, I think we throw it around in different forms, but maybe we don't always have a firm grasp on what it means. So in the Greek, this word is peripateo, which means to walk, to conduct life, to be occupied with, to follow, or to deport oneself. So if you skip down to verse 18, there's actually a similar phrase there that said, led, says led by the Spirit. That's a word-for-word -word translation. And then in verse 25, another phrase that sounds a lot like that, which says keep in step with the Spirit, which literally means to march behind or to fall in line with something. So as we examine this passage today, and it's talking about keeping in step with the Spirit, we need to understand and have a definition for that. That walking by the Spirit means that a Christian's entire life falls into obedient step behind the leading of the Holy Spirit. It implies that he's the one in charge, I'm not. He calls the shots, I don't. So we're going to keep talking about this as we move forward, but we really need to start there for the rest of this to make sense. So also in verse 16, there's something else for us to notice. The two words, will not. So it doesn't say there that if we're led by the Spirit, we might not gratify or occasionally won't gratify the desires of our flesh. It says we will not. So this is a promise. It's a positive consequence, right? We think of consequences usually as negative. This is a positive consequence of walking in the Spirit. If we are struggling with sin, keeping in step of the, with the Spirit is how we will not gratify the desires of our flesh. So if we flip this around, that also means that in those moments when we are gratifying the desires of our flesh, we by definition are not in step by the Spirit. Does that make sense? So why is this? Paul tells us in verse 17. He says this is so because the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Look, Paul says, these things, they can't exist in the same space. You either live out the desires from the Spirit or you live out the desires from the flesh. You can't have both at the same time. We can't say, hey, I'm walking with the Spirit and then act out of the flesh at the same time. We cannot sin and then say, God told me to do it. Right? So if that's true, then it's also true that we have to have a firm grasp on what Scripture says, because if we're to understand that the Spirit will not lead us to do something contrary to God's Word, we should know what God's Word is. Right? So we can actually uh, look at this kind of in a comical, ex or a comical example. So think about like the teenager hormone-saturated, acting out of obsession and lust, who says to the girl, God told me you're supposed to be my girlfriend, right? No one's buying that. Why? Because he's clearly acting out of the flesh, right? 
God didn't t- tell you you're supposed to be that person's girl- or girlfriend, right? So similarly, when we're fueled by the passions of the fr- flesh and then saying, God told me to do this thing, that doesn't compute. Paul's not buying that nonsense, neither should we. So the Spirit, again, will never lead us to act sinfully or out of our own selfish desires. These things are opposed, Paul says, completely at odds. So then it's also probably important to make the point that if we are convinced that God has told us to do something and that clearly goes against his word, that probably betrays that our God really isn't Yahweh. If we're convinced God told us to do something that's actually sinful, that can't come from him, our God probably isn't Yahweh. Or at least we're not acting like it in that moment. So, verse 18 says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, this point in Galatians, it really shouldn't be a surprise to us that Paul says this, because if you remember way back, like in the spring, when we were in chapter 3, in verse 23 we read, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So this should make sense to us, right? In chapter 3, a few verses earlier, we read that the law was given because of sin to act as a guardian or a babysitter, as Pastor Ryan put it, or this morning to act as bumper rails in a bowling alley, keeping God's people headed in the right direction, right? So you can't go too far right, too far left. But the law could not justify, could not remove sin from sinful men. It could only tell us how we had sinned. It could only condemn us. So now we understand that Christ has come. He's died. He's risen again. He's defeated sin and death. And people who place their faith in him and are justified, which just means that their sins have been pardoned through Jesus' sacrifice, they are no longer under the guardianship of the law. They are free. The bumper rails are gone, right? That's good news. But that still really leaves us to ask one question. If there's no bumper rails, if there's no guardian over God's people of the law, what keeps God's people from wildly running amok in their own passions and sinful desires? What keeps God's people from becoming a massive gutter ball? What keeps us aiming towards our ultimate purpose as believers? And again, verse 18 says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So let's flip those phrases around, keep the meaning, but make it more clear to us in English. It would sound like this. But you are not under the law if you are led by the Spirit. I'm going to say that again. But you are not under the law if you are led by the Spirit. So that's our answer. The trade-off for being out from underneath the law is that we're now under the authority of the Holy Spirit. And we read in chapter 3 that in Jesus Christ you are all sons of God. So we read something similar in Romans 8. So Romans 8, if you take Galatians 5, this is like, Romans 8 is like the same thing this big, okay? Paul takes these ideas and he really fleshes them out, okay? So in Romans 8, what Paul says about this topic is that all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, meaning Only people who are led of God's Spirit are his children. So Paul wants us to see, if you aren't led by the Holy Spirit, you aren't a son or daughter of God. So the verse right before this in Romans, Romans 8.13, teased this idea up by saying, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And that sounds an awful lot like verse 17 today, right? These two passages go hand in hand. Today in verse 17, verse 17 of this, today's passage says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. So hopefully I've hit this hard enough this morning. So during this series, Pastor Ryan has used 
two phrases. Now, there are several different ways as believers that we've traditionally talked about these ideas, but this is how we've gone about it in this series. We've talked about gospel entry, so that's salvation, right? I receive the gospel. I'm born again. I'm justified. My sins are taken care of, right? Then there's gospel story, Our life as people of God where we grow in faith, where God sanctifies us, which means that he's making us more like Jesus, he's rooting sin out of our life, and so on. So the gospel doesn't just stop at conversion. We're not saved only past tense. We are also being saved day by day. So living life led by the Spirit, gospel story, is the gospel. We can't have one without the other, right? We are saved, and we are being saved, the gospel, together. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Yeah, feedback is great. All right, so we can't, that means we can't claim salvation without also embracing the leadership of the Holy Spirit in our lives because it's how the gospel is lived out in us. So these are some really hefty statements. Right? These are hard things that Paul is saying. So for any normal person, I think a reaction to this news would just be to say, okay, so if walking by the Spirit is a marker of whether or not I belong to God, how do I know then if the Spirit lives in me? How do I know if I'm walking in step with him? So this comes from a concern that maybe my life doesn't reflect this reality, which is a healthy reaction. So now in verses 19 through 23, Paul is going to answer that question by laying out two lists for us side by side to help us answer this. And one list shows the life of a person who is living in cooperation with the Holy Spirit, and the other list is a person who has lived in opposition to the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> so we read these in verses 19 through 23. Let's read that. It says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And then it goes on. So here at the end of verse 23, we see a theme of freedom again, which we looked at two weeks ago, because it says, against such things there is no law. So when we walk with the Spirit, we are free to live in a godly manner. And not only that, but this passage also implies that when we walk with the Spirit, not only does he empower us to do the things for which there is no law, right, the things of the Spirit, he also enables us to say no, to reject the things for which there is a law, the deeds of the flesh. So, This is actually really amazing news because even though we are free from the law, when we walk in the Spirit, we actually follow the law better than we ever could by our own efforts. As in, we don't need the bumper rails because the Holy Spirit turns us into a pro bowler and enables us to hit a strike every time. Jesus demonstrated this for us. So we think mainly of Jesus's life as being about gospel entry. That he came, that he lived, he died, he was buried, he rose again and ascended so that we could be justified, which is true. But the second part is that Jesus also came to show us what it looks like to live a spirit-led life, right? At the beginning of his ministry, what did Jesus do? He went and he was baptized, and we see the Holy Spirit descending on him, and God the Father says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus goes out. It says he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, 
And he goes out and he prepares for ministry, and then he lives for us the perfect example of sinlessness, perfectly following the law and delighting in God's word, right? He delighted in the law from which we are free, which is crazy, but that's how we are supposed to live, through the Spirit, okay? So, when we walk in the Spirit, the same power to do that which pleases God dwells in us. So, in the middle of these lists, you'll notice there's a comment from Paul about those who do the deeds of the flesh. He says this, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do... So, when we will not inherit the kingdom of God. So when we first read this, it sounds like he's saying, if you've ever done anything on this list, you can't get into heaven. Kind of sounds like that, doesn't it? But is that what he's really saying? Because that doesn't seem to line up with the gospel. So at this point, I think it would be actually helpful for us to pause and to take a look outside of Galatians for a moment So in your Bible, the heading for this passage probably says something like the fruit of the Spirit. But we really haven't talked about the fruit of the Spirit very much this morning. So I want to take some moments and step back and look at broader scripture with the theme of uh, fruit and the trees that it comes from. So one feature that God has woven into the scripture is that of imagery. So a biblical image is like a metaphor that describes a spiritual reality. So right away in Genesis, we get one of these where God says, let there be light, and we see this light versus darkness, and God's establishing himself as the ultimate good in the universe, and then you travel with that through scripture, and then in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, he references Jesus as being light, and he's making that connection that Jesus is God, right, and that Jesus is our creator. So that's one easy example. So another example of this a image, a theme of imagery that goes through scripture is of trees and their fruit. And just as we read in Galatians, the tree often represents a person and the fruit represents the outcomes of their life. So let's hit some of these highlights briefly and make a list of what we notice and we're going to call them biblical truths about trees and fruit. So in in Scripture, the first mention of trees and fruit appears in Genesis 1.11, which is the record of creation. When God makes trees, he says this, Let the earth sprout, fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed according to its kind. So first of all, we can put on our list that tree, fruit trees bear fruit according to their kind. So when Riley Orchards plants a field of cherry trees, they don't come back the next summer expecting to find mangoes hanging from the branches, right? They understand that you plant the kind of tree that's going to yield the kind of fruit that you want. Apples come from apple trees. Cherries come from cherry trees. The fruit of the Spirit comes from a Spirit-led life. So we'll come back to this little aside later, but it's also fascinating that when you look at the parable of the sower in Matthew, Jesus equates the gospel to a seed, okay? So put a pin in that. We'll be back. So we spent all of last summer in the Psalms, and we started looking at Psalm 1, and then we came back to Psalm 1 in our mental health series. And Psalm 1, 2 and 3 is describing a righteous man, and it says that a blessed man's delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. So who does that person sound like? Delighting in the law of the Lord. Who does that sound like? Jesus. Okay, so so that sounds like Jesus, right? Delighting in God's law, meditating on God's word day and night. So we can add to our list then that healthy, fruitful trees delight in God's word. They don't just visit it on the weekends for a refreshing swim. They're planted in it day in, day out. Also, this, this passage says that fruit is born in season, and that implies that this type of person is patient, purposeful, and faithful as the fruit is formed in their life 
not rushing through each season, but letting God work in that season in its time. So we can then move on to Psalm 92, which tells us that the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age, and they are ever full of sap and green. So we can add to our list that spirit-led people aren't just planted by streams of water in any old place. They're planted where? Where are they planted? In the house of the Lord, in church, right? Church matters a great deal to spirit-led people. It's where the other fruit trees are planted. It's where they flourish. But then let's not miss the second point of this verse, that this type of person still bears fruit in old age. Older generation, this one's for you. The Word of God makes it plain to us this morning that if we are spirit-led people, meaning if we are truly born again, then we will bear fruit, and we could argue in growing abundance all the way up until the moment God calls us into eternity. As you get older, the fruit of your life should be getting riper and riper and sweeter and sweeter. Your branches should be so full of ripe, succulent spiritual fruit that is filled with the sweetness of Christ that the slightest interaction with another person bursts forth in blessing and, and refreshment. If you have claimed the name of Jesus for 30, 40, 50, 60 years and someone has to hunt through your leaves for some fruit, there's a problem. If people dread interactions with you because they are not sure if they're going to get blessed or berated, that's a problem. If someone takes a bite of the fruit of your life and gets a bitter mouthful, that's a problem. If you've been redeemed and the Spirit dwells in you and there is not a song of praise on your lips on a Sunday morning, that's a problem. Psalm 92 says that healthy fruit trees will produce healthy fruit into old age. The church's oldest saints should be a grove of perfectly ripe honey crisps, not a knotted up vineyard of sour grapes. Unless you think that's only for the older generation, we're all going to be old. So that's for all of us. So before we leave the Psalms, we're not done being convicted yet. We run into Psalm 128, which is addressing another group of people. It says, Blessed is everyone who, bear, who fears the Lord who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall be the man blessed who fears the Lord. Here we see that a healthy tree not only produces healthy fruit on its own branches, but it also directly impacts the branches of others, particularly those who are in your family. Men who are fathers or husbands or both, this is for you and for me. Your cooperation with the Holy Spirit and living a Spirit-led life is directly connected to the spiritual well-being of your wife and your children. It matters that you follow the Spirit. It matters that you prioritize your time in the Word. It matters that you are actively killing sin in your life. It matters that you lead. It matters that you don't make work an idol. It matters that you invest time and energy into their spiritual lives. Healthy trees bear fruit that grow into other healthy trees. They reproduce. Your physical fruit, your children, should also be your spiritual fruit. Don't waste your life on things that are not eternal. So we continue, and we're going to fly through these next few. Proverbs 14, 14 tells us that the backslider in heart will be filled with the fruit of his ways, and a good man will be filled with the fruit of his ways. Next point, what's inside the tree will always come out. Isaiah 3.10, tell the righteous that it shall be well with them, for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Next point, our fruit will either be a refreshing bite or come back to bite us. In Matthew, Jesus talks a lot about fruit. Here's one of his most blunt statements on the subject. 
Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Let every tree that does not bear good fruit be cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Matthew seventeen fifteen through 20. Next point, dead trees cannot bear good fruit. Next point, dead trees will be cut down and thrown in the fire. Next point, Jesus says to recognize a false prophet, look at the fruit of his life. And there's another harrowing account in Matthew where Jesus is hungry and he sees a fig tree. It appears healthy, but when he approaches it, there's no fruit there, right? It proves that it's, there's no life within it. So he curses it, telling it to never bear fruit again, and it shrivels. Are we overwhelmed? I hope so. Because when we engage with the word of God, it should call us out of the shadows to see our lives as they really are, Sitting under the preaching of the word is the one time every week where we can be candid about the state of our heart and we cannot change the channel. It's a time when we intentionally let ourselves be convicted because we know that we are prone to wander and we need God's word to set us straight through the working of the Spirit. So we actually started down this path talking about trees and their fruit because we had the question, is Paul really saying that if I've ever done one of these things on this list that I can't go to heaven. No, he's not. Paul is not inviting us to belabor the particulars, but rather to look at the whole life. Paul is not making a list of unpardonable sins because we know from 1 John 1.9 that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Titus 3.5 tells us that it's not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy that he saved us. Jesus' blood is powerful enough to atone for all of our sins. And when we think that we can accidentally sin our way out of salvation, it betrays that we believe deep down that our salvation is based on what we can do. And so we say, no. We are not saved by the quality of our faith, but rather the quality of him in whom our faith rests, which is Jesus Christ. So next week, we're going to be looking at how Paul says to come alongside a brother who has fallen into sin. I'll say that again, a brother who has fallen into sin. That passage wouldn't even be written if you became unsaved every time you accidentally sinned or intentionally sinned, right? He wouldn't be calling them brother and saying they've sinned if they were unsaved. But I think the most convincing thing is the type of word that Paul used here for the word do. So sometimes English is really unhelpful. The word do here in the Greek is praso, which means to practice, perform repeatedly, or habitually. So the concordance actually specifies that this is a totally different word from poieo, which means a single act. So I believe instead that Paul is using this word, this habitual word, instead to draw a parallel to fruit, as in the fruit of a spirit-led person will look this way, and the fruit of a flesh-led person will look like this. He's talking about patterns, outcomes, not incidents. Notice also that Paul calls them the fruit of the Spirit, singular, not fruits, plural. Because as we just looked, that would be inconsistent with the rest of biblical imagery. So remember, you can't get a mango from an apple tree. So Paul isn't saying that a Spirit-led life might grow a love fruit here, or a joy fruit on this branch, or maybe a self-control fruit over here. He's saying that all of these things are together the fruit of the Spirit, and that were you to actually be able to pluck a fruit from this person's life, 
you would find all of these things in every bite. They grow together. Together, they are the fruit of the Spirit, singular. So the same principle is being mirrored in the, per- in the life of the person who is controlled by the flesh. So he does say deeds or works of the flesh. That is plural. And that draws our attention to uh, the fact that someone who's controlled by the flesh, that might present in many different ways, but it's always going to be sinful. That's why he doesn't end the list. He says, and things like these. It leaves it open to the fact that we're sinful and we like to invent all sorts of different ways to sin and a person who is led by the flesh is going to present sinfully, okay? But the parallel is there, that this is a, the fruit of this person's life is spirit-led and the fruit of this person's life is flesh-led. So Paul doesn't want us to get off in the weeds of this sin or that sin or I told a lie yesterday, am I going to hell now? He's inviting us to look at the overarching fruit of our life. Does the fruit of my life show that I am a healthy tree or not? Am I a spirit-led son of God or am I not? So let's put this in perspective of all of Galatians, right? Paul's writing to the Galatian church. This is a church who he said, joyfully receive the gospel. They evidenced their born-againness in how they cared for him when he was in need. Their fruit was evident. These are people who understood that they were saved by faith and not the law. So Paul's main point is not to make the Galatians question their gospel entry, but rather to confront the issue that having heard the gospel and having been saved by faith, they are now trying to live out their faith through works of the law instead of the Spirit. They're buying into the false gospel that Jesus saved me past tense, past tense, but now the law is going to save me moving forward. And his response to all this nonsense, nonsense we see in 24 and 25 when he basically says, no, you're in Christ. Your passions and desires have been crucified. Why on earth are you trying to live the Christian life through your own means? Why are you tr- going backwards? Why are you clinging to the law and to circumcision when you know good and well it can't save you? If you live by the Spirit, he says, if the Spirit is in you, then keep in step with him. Don't say you're living out the gospel when you're really living out the law. Look at the fruit of your life. I can prove to you that what you preach is a pr- false gospel because it's producing in you the fruit of the flesh and not the fruit of the Spirit. You are not walking in step with him on this one. So Paul's not questioning these people's salvation, although I'm sure there are some people in that church who were not saved. If he had, it, listen, if Paul had questioned their salvation based on their deeds, he would be making the same error that they are. He'd be making salvation works based. So this tells us that Paul is rather urging the Galatian church to notice that their fruit is souring. Something's altering your fruit, he says. The gospel story's being twisted in your testimony. You're not telling it right. Look out. So we talked a lot this morning about biblical imagery, and we're going to apply this with a little bit more. So we journey back to Genesis at creation, and in verse 2 of chapter 1, we read that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And a few verses later, we notice that God made fruit trees to bear fruit with seed in it according to their kind, and we commented that Jesus equates the gospel with seed in the parable of the sower. So we often as believers associate the Holy Spirit with fire that came at Pentecost. But if we read here that he was hovering over the face of the waters at creation, maybe this passage from Isaiah 44.3 will sound a little different to us. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground, I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. In these passages, the Holy Spirit is depicted as water or being connected to water. 
In Psalm 1, we read that the righteous man, read, the spirit-led man, is planted by streams of water, and that he delights in God's word. So when the gospel seed is planted by streams of water and takes root, that life will be nourished by the word of God and the spirit, and it will grow into a healthy tree that bears fruit, containing seed according to its kind, which is fruit born of the gospel, a spirit-filled life. If the fruit doesn't have the seed of the gospel, it's not coming from a root of the gospel. Do you know what our church logo is? It's a fruit tree. And do you know what makes up the trunk? It's a cross, right? We designed it that way on purpose because we at FBC want to be known as people who are rooted and grounded in God's word, nourished by his spirit, that grow into trees that bear fruit according to the gospel kind. So as we wrap up this morning, we are to know from this passage that there are three types of people and two types of trees represented. There are dead trees who know they're dead. There are dead trees who think they're alive but are really dead. And there are healthy trees. So the question we must consider before we can move on from this passage is which tree am I? To the dead trees who know they are dead, we can flip over one page and hear this in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. Jesus is in the business of making dead people alive. Are you a slave to sin? Are you gratifying the flesh? Are you deserving of the wrath of God? Come to Jesus, all who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give you rest for your souls. Repent and believe. To dead trees who think they are alive, you've heard God's word clearly this morning. You will know them by their fruits. What's the fruit of your life? Does it point to a son or daughter of God who is led by his spirit? Or does it point to someone who is led by the flesh, someone not yet born again? The same invitation in Ephesians 2 is available to you as well. Come to Jesus, all who are weary and heavy laden, and he will give you rest for your souls. Repent and believe. To those who are healthy trees, thank you. You are the people who it's such a joy to walk with. You make ministry a delight, and our interactions with you as pastors are breaths of fresh air. Keep leaning into the Spirit. Keep showing us what a life bearing healthy fruit looks like because we need it in this world. I would tend to think so, though, that there's a group of people in this room that don't resonate with any of those. These would be trees who are alive but have poor fruit. You're people that have received salvation, who have been born again by grace through faith. And like the Galatians, you've gotten gospel entry right, but you're trying to live the gospel story by your own efforts under the law. You're not following the Spirit, and it's leading to some pretty rotten fruit. Maybe you've noticed that you aren't very loving anymore, or that your patience wears thin easily. Maybe you've lost self-control in an area of your life, or maybe sexual temptation plagues you, or you're anxious about everything. Maybe you can't seem to let go of that dirty little habit. Our temptation as humans is to focus on the symptom rather than the sickness. So we notice these things in our life that 
I'm not joyful. So then we go over and we try to triage joy or we try to triage peace as if the fruit is divorced from the life being given it from the tree. But if your fruit is going sour, don't fixate on trying to polish the dying fruit. Look at your roots. Are you being nourished through God's word and led by the Holy Spirit? D.A. Carson writes about this and our human tendency to mix up the fruits of worship with the roots by saying this. He says, if you seek peace, you will not find it. But if you seek Christ, you'll find peace. If you seek joy, you will not find it. But if you seek Christ, you will find joy. If you seek holiness, you will not find it. But if you seek Christ, you will find holiness. If you seek experiences in worship, you will not find them. But if you, ex- if you worship the living God, you will experience something of what is reflected in the Psalms. So we can add this morning that if we seek to produce fruit, we will not produce it, or at least the wrong kind. But if we sink our roots into God's word and are led by his spirit, we will bear fruit and the right kind. So this morning, I'm being intentionally non-prescriptive. I'm fighting the urge to play the Holy Spirit and give you a list of things that would benefit you. And I'm doing this because I know my terrible tendency as a human to take good things and turn them into a checklist for living the Christian life. And as soon as we turn them into a checklist, we put ourselves back under the law. I have been careful only to suggest only that our tree the tree of our life, must be nourished by the word and led by the spirit so that it is they that direct the next step of your life. Worship team, you can come up. So I would bet this morning that if the spirit lives in you, he's already been pressing on your heart and mind what the next step is. He's already been exposing sin. He's already been convicting you of ways you're out of step with him. And if that's the case, I would urge you this morning to listen and obey. If you don't have the Spirit in you, if you're not born again, perhaps he's been inviting you this morning into a relationship with you, and it's time for you to repent and believe and be forgiven. 